HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Oh, it's certainly, it's certainly not the modern, the millennials are not into corned beef. <laughs> no. Every year, thousands of Irish graduates like myself travel to America on 12-month J-1 visas. Though it is a violation of the visa's terms, Working in services is an economic reality for many. Lucky for us, it seems most American cities have their own take on a particular type of pub. When looking for work, it's here that we can at least count on consideration, regardless of previous experience. When I came to America first, uh, there was 44 Blarney Stones, there was 9 Blarney Rocks, there was yeah. 6 Killarney Roses, there was 28 McCann's Bars, and they had steam tables. Mm. Okay. And yeah. they 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 specialised in corned beef, brisket of beef, uh, ham, um, and that type of food on the steam table. Mm. Okay. And they were very successful. But there's not one of those stores left in Manhattan. Though there has been a decrease in numbers, Irish bars still exist. During my own time working in one, the corned beef brisket caught my attention. Around St. Patrick's Day, you may find other bars adapting their standard menus to include some variant on a corned beef, cabbage and potato dish. In specifically Irish bars, it seems to be an important part of the experience. I began to wonder why it was such a significant dish. I decided to ask around. All right, okay. Yeah. And why, why are you picking such a well-traveled road of a subject? Um, you mean the... Uh... The, the corned beef and things like that? Yeah, it's been beaten to death, that, that road. Could you not come up with something more... more... Clearly, I'm not the first to ask. That was Peter O'Connell from Molly's Shabine in Gramercy in Manhattan. Molly's opened in 1960, in the same era as the numerous Blarney rocks and stones Peter just mentioned. These days, it still serves corned beef and cabbage, as well as a very particular vision of Ireland complete with sawdust shavings on the floor. In my mind, the term corned beef meant shredded meat in a tin, which you open with a key. Not necessarily something I associated with home. There were a lot of dishes I did associate with home, but I didn't think these would necessarily speak for everyone. And yet, corned beef seemed to be uniquely Irish. Soon, what had started out as a simple question about a particular dish evolved into discussions on identity, nostalgia, and saltpetre. 
According to Justin McManus from the Peter McManus Cafe on 7th Avenue and 19th, also in Manhattan, the dish goes back a lot further than the 1960s. The Peter McManus Cafe is actually a bar and has stayed in the McManus family since opening in 1910. Here's Justin's take on corned beef in New York. New York Irish, and then and also like there was a big Jewish population. A lot of them actually yeah. shared ha- housing. They, they had these what they called these like tenement apartments. You know, there was what now you would probably have. You know, if you look at a building, maybe maybe one apartment on the floor for like a couple. They probably had four or five whole families living in these yeah, things, yeah. sharing sharing one bathroom. You know, per floor. You know, all, all you know, every room just had enough. You know, space for for a bed for you to light up. You know, and maybe. A small, small closet you shared too, where you lived out of a suitcase. We call it corned beef, and it's, and it's, it's called brisket. Mm. <laughs> and uh, but it, you know, it was the, it was that same that same piece of meat. Um, so that you see a lot of like crossovers with a lot of uh, you know similar things. But it was that and, and the, the cabbage. You know, like so you'd have corned beef, and it was traditionally served with cabbage, which was another vegetable that had so much of that was cheap, but it was very bitter and sour, so you had to, you know, boil it, you could boil it almost in the same pot, and same bed, and of course the potatoes, which is always going to be something a good Irishman wants to eat, so, <laughs> yeah. no, matter, no, matter, no matter where, um, so those three things would be boiled, boiled together. Every, you know, Irish-American pub is going to have a, have a good tasty corned beef sandwich, you know, and mm. that, that they make, they, they want to do it right. So it seems this is a dish people would have prepared with their new neighbours, making the best of what they had. Sounds nice. According to Peter Collin, from Collin's Meats in the English Market here in Cork, they may even have hummed a tune while they were at it. One of them, if I, if I remember reading, that was called uh, my, e, my Yiddish Colleen. Here is a story which feels familiar. The fate of the Irish immigrant to America is a popular fable on both sides of the Atlantic. On closer inspection, however, it seems the actual origin of this particular cured meat may be a little bit more complicated. Here's Regina Sexton, a published author and food and culinary historian specialising in 18th century foodways. Cork has a very strong connection with uh, salted or corned beef, right. as we okay. as we call it. And I suppose for a number of reasons, but the main reason would be an economic one. Mm. That's based on the trading, the food trade that mm. was happening between Cork and um, the rest of the world, in particular the transatlantic trade in the 18th century. Okay. Now, there was always foods going out of Cork right. um, because Cork is special in a number of ways. It's kind of the Golden Vale and so on. So what it produces very, very well in the agricultural hinterland around the city and the county and the counties surrounding it mm. um, is, is uh, uh, cattle and in particular uh, beef cattle and dairy cattle. I see. Okay. So the area produces superlative ingredients mm. in, in the form of meat. And dairy produce like butter, in particular, yeah. cream, and cheeses. The the the, the British Empire mm. realised that Cork was a very important point, particularly a sheltered port for their naval fleets. It was also a defensive point, 
uh, around the harbour there's many defensive sort of uh, forts and so on that are associated with navy and naval activity mm. and also of course it was a good place to provision mm. um, okay. for all of those fleets of ships that were leaving the new the old world and going across to America okay. so it was a great place so they could stop in Cork yeah. and they could provision their ships mm. and what they provisioned with of course were things to eat themselves en route right. but also things to trade with the new world yes. so they're selling both to North and South America it seems that once corned beef did arrive in the United States, it caught on very quickly, as Peter Collin describes. It was 1762, right, was the first uh, parade, which, and of course, it was predominantly then celebrated with corned beef and cabbage throughout the, throughout the states, New York. And in fact, just on, on a point of that, President Lincoln's inauguration, inauguration dinner, right, which was the 4th of March, 1861, right? Okay. He had corned beef and cabbage. So now we know that corned beef on St. Patrick's Day was traditional from day one. That said, we're still not entirely clear on the preparation of this celebrated dish. What is corned beef and cured meat in general? Here's Regina with a more detailed description. So in particular, if you're thinking about a large animal, like mm. a cow, yeah. um, I don't know if you've ever seen the slaughter of that, but once mm. you slaughter the animal, mm. you do need to have a whole system swing into place okay. because you don't want to waste anything mm. and you want to make good use of things. And in the days before refrigeration, mm. the main preserving ingredient uh, would be salt. Yes. And later on, like most traditional staples, it seems corned beef was born of necessity. Modern technology and transport have removed the dish from its original context. However, if necessity is the mother of invention, then modernity and surplus give rise to nostalgia. Peter Collin describes the modern approach to corned beef preparation. First of all, it, it's uh, processed and cut into, into, into joints, usually, usually deboned, deboned uh, the briskets for rolling and they'd be rolled similar to a Swiss roll right it would resemble that because you'd have you'd have both fat and meat when you'd cut when you'd slice it right that was purely for the people that would would like it that way the the top side silver side and tail end uh, would would be a very lean cut with with a selvage of fat on the outside which would g- help the flavour. You know, we immerse it in, in, in brine, we put it in, in, in brine, salt and water. Uh, with the preparation for that is salt, some brown sugar. Uh, there was a time they used to use saltpetre. Oh, but that, that's kind of gone. That's gone. That was for pigmentation, right? Oh, okay. And uh, that faded out in the 70s right. in the Troubles in Ireland oh. because, remember... If if anybody strange went to the you have to go you have to go to the chemist, right? right? Yeah. If somebody strange went to the chemist yeah. and and asked for some Peter, yeah. they 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 we'll we'll do that for you now. And they phoned the, the police and two detectives arrived. You know what do they want to sell Peter for? It seems that subsequently corned beef has become quite a popular item here in Cork City, even if its popularity has ebbed and flowed. So hence, it's very much a, a, a huge, a huge thing again. I would, we would, we would sell three, three to four hundred pounds weight of, uh, of of beef and sell yeah. every week. Wow. Okay. You know, as we're beginning to find out, there are at least two sides to each story. While corned beef may still fetch between five and six euro per kilogram in the English market, against eight euro per kilogram for pork loin, 
its true price was much higher up on the hill in the suburbs of North Cork. Here's Regina again. So the slaughtering was concentrated in the winter months and it's hundreds of thousands of heads of cattle are slaughtered in a very small period of time. Mm. Um, so you can imagine what Cork was like at that point, if, mm. if, if, if the northern suburbs full of slaughterhouses yes. and abattoirs. If you think about noises, smells, the whole atmosphere and so on, it, it mm. must have been extraordinary. Yeah. And you had a whole load of sort of ancillary industries building up from that, like hide, and bone, horn, mm. making buttons, all that sort of stuff, yeah. gut, mm. um, blood. So corned beef is just one product for one of a number of codependent industries. Here, Regina describes in similar detail another cork delicacy, one that may be less familiar stateside. The third chamber was called Book Tripe. Okay. And it looked like a book because it was full of leaves. Okay. <laughs> and uh, if you were trying to sell that, you had to clean uh, digested grass from each of the leaves. Uh, so it was okay. too labour intensive. I see. <laughs> um, and then the fourth chamber was called the black because uh, it was dark in colour mm. and there was kind of a, yeah, people yeah. weren't sort of, they were put off by the colour of it. If anyone at home is thinking this is not the tribe I know and love, the most recognisable form of tribe is in fact the second chamber of the cow's stomach, known as honeycomb tribe. So why is one appendage cherished above another? Tripe is a notoriously versatile ingredient, and it has been unfairly overlooked, given it and corned beef's shared heritage here in industrial Cork. In any case, what they do show us is that the origins of beloved staples and fondly remembered flavours are often less romantic than we think. But ultimately, do people care? When we find ourselves in a new city, we often want something that reminds us of home. Even today, arriving in America is often a jarring experience. Jack McGarry is the founder of The Dead Rabbit, a more modern Irish bar in Lower Manhattan. Here's his account of his first few days in New York. I came over to New York, and obviously, like, when, you're, when you've just arrived over here about seven years ago, and um, you're walking through Times Square and, and all these kind of places, you're seeing these, like, hula hands and, hands and all this kind of Irish pubs um, knocking around, you're going into them, and they're not, there's just nothing Irish about them, you know, an Irish flag outside the front door, and they serve a pint of Guinness, and maybe, maybe they have somebody behind the bar that's Irish. A lot of these Irish American bars are there for... Profit. They're there for uh, they're there to make money, and, and in a lot of ways, an Irish bar in, in that type of area in, in New York, and, and it's the same all over the world. But for me, they're like Disneyland Irish bars. Jack does have a point. No one likes to feel like something is being sold back to them, especially if it feels like a cheap imitation. That said, why would you outside of Ireland classify a bar as Irish, other than to make a statement to potential customers? Is it that the bar is the same as those in Ireland? Are all bars in Ireland the same? Aside from making a geographical statement, I would feel a little weird claiming one thing is Irish and another isn't. As we've heard, corned beef comes from Ireland, and yet its identity is more global and complex. Here's Regina again. So even when the beef is going into America, yes. out of Cork, mm. um, you know, we talked about the hierarchy in terms of fresh and salted. Yes. Even when... The beef has been salted in cork. There's a hierarchy in the salted meats as well. Okay, yeah. So the, the best ones would be ones that they called, going into the American market, would okay. be called planter's beef. Yes, okay. Or mess beef. Right. And then they had cargo beef. Mm, okay. 
and best cargo beef mm. and th- that was the hierarchy so planters was, was the best mm. uh, the mess beef and the cargo beef okay. and what what made the difference between them yeah. was, was the level of leanness or fat This is interesting Whatever section in this hierarchy Irish immigrants could afford to buy from probably said a lot about their social standing but this is not unique to Irish immigrants The struggles of the Irish in America are well publicised but ultimately, they were only one group amongst a huge number of immigrants from all over the world. As Justin mentioned earlier, it wasn't only the Irish who were buying corned beef. Once again, corned beef tells a complex and layered story. Can the same be said of Irish bars? I mean, for me, an Irish bar, I've read the book recently, and it was in reference to, uh, I, think, I think the book was called The Third Place. Um, hmm. It's basically called The First Place, The Home Place, and The Second Place, The Work Place. And the third place was where you, you, you had to seek refuge. So for a lot of people, that would be like yoga or running or, or whatever. But definitely in Ireland, that third place was, was the pub. Uh, mm. The pub was, was sort of like the community centre um, where people came together. And- this makes a lot of sense. Just as people would have gravitated towards certain foods that were accessible and familiar, they may well have flocked to bars that provided a similar space to those back home. I wonder if this is a specifically Irish thing to do, however. Is this not a claim any variety of bar anywhere in the world could make? Angie Kohler runs the Erin Rose in New Orleans. Here is her take on what makes the bar Irish. So I'm born and raised in the French Quarter. Hmm. And so New Orleans is pretty much in my blood from dancing in the streets, listening to brass music, to eating great food, to to celebrating camaraderie with all kinds of different walks of life at just exude fun and great spirit. That's that's pretty much the background. And as far as the my take on the characteristics of an Irish pub, hmm. it's it's a sense of great community. Hmm. So with that, I look at it as New Orleans and Irish heritage as being one and the same. On the face of things, this is quite a relaxed definition. That said. The Erin Rhodes herself is a very clearly defined personality. She is the matriarch of 811 Conti, mm. her address, and I would consider her the daughter that I've never had. I, I'm, I'm, my husband and I act as uh, guardians of her, is what we call, because she's, um, she's an entity on her own. You know, mm. so, whether you know if you if you think of um, Brigitte from Kildare, mm. or you, you think of things like that, I you know I look at Erin Rose as this special entity that looks out for all those looking to have a good time and keep it light, keep it fun, and keep it real. Personally, I would wonder whether one needs to keep it fun or real if they want to consider themselves Irish, or whether Irishness is a prerequisite for keeping it light. That said, I do admire Angie's open-minded attitude to the question. In any case, it is getting hard to justify claiming any one characteristic or menu item as uniquely Irish. As it turns out, the less fortunate Irish weren't the only ones eating corned beef. So that's interesting too, because when it's going into America, hmm. you'll see a lot of the salted beef going into America is, is bought by the, the white planters, yes. hence salted planters okay. beef. And a lot of those planters are concerned with the sugar plantations and so on. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the beef will make its way to the workers. Right. 
the slave populations yeah. in some instances for special occasions for them. Yes, okay. Like the I cargo see. version. I see, okay. So in many yeah. ways, if you want to do a strange, stretched uh, comparison mm. between the poor Irish in Ireland in the 19th century yeah, and, and the oppressed, yeah, much more oppressed populations in slavery. I would view this not so much as a comparison, but more as evidence of how small the world was and still is. Here we have a link between something familiar and a part of history many want to distance themselves from. Returning to the Irish-American population again, today it is seven times larger than that of Ireland itself. This makes for a diffused and complex identity, which doesn't really bear measurement in bars and briskets. Even within Ireland itself, there is a multiplicity which belies the idea of a single culture. Besides, as Peter O'Connell maintains, corned beef has had its day. ...that the people use their cookers in their apartments for storage space. They eat out. Yeah. But now we have competition from Postmates, from mm, okay. um, all the it delivery services. It is true that we now have much more choice. These days, the dishes someone might grow up with in Ireland are much more varied. In the end, it all comes down to context. To finish up, here's Regina again. So, like, a really popular dish in Ireland, uh, up until quite recently, was, was bacon and cabbage and potatoes. Mm, yes. You know, that would have been a part of the repertoire of, of most Irish people's mm. uh, weekly uh, kind of dinners and so on, you'd have bacon and cabbage and potatoes. Mm. If you think about it, it's a salted meat, and it's mm. a carbohydrate, and it's a vegetable. Yeah, That's okay. what it is. And the American bacon and cabbage, or corned beef and cabbage, is the same thing, really. It's yeah. a salted meat. It's potatoes, and, and it's the brassica, which is the cabbage. Okay. But I suppose the one thread that, that does connect immigrants is that food is a comforting thing, mm. and it's imbued with all sorts of complicated psychological things like emotion and nostalgia, mm. and it, it reminds you of things, and it brings you places, and so on. So it has a power in that sense. Mm. So what the immigrant creates in terms of food Maybe not so much what's actually on the plate, but it's it's the power that that construction has mm. for them in a psychological and an emotional way. So, in the end, corned beef didn't stir any of the psychological associations I brought with me to America. But then again, times have changed. Thank you to all of the interviewees and to everyone at Heritage Radio Network. Special thanks to Susan McKeown and Lawrence Lambert for their help in tracking down Walter Van Brunt's recording. Be sure to check out their Irish-Yiddish folk fusion album, Saints and Zadigs.